This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. We like from time to time to bring on Penn or Wharton grads who are doing very interesting things in the world. And one such person is David Pakman, who is a partner at Venrock. David's story does not start with the seemingly traditional path of a VC funder, yet he has become an important piece to the Venrock story as he looks at early stage Internet and digital media companies. He was also part of a team that believed in a unique idea, selling razor blades to men over the Internet. Of course, that being Dollar Shave Club, which was recently sold to Unilever for $1 billion. And David joins us on the phone right now. David, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, that sale, I guess, in some respects, had to make you feel good in the, in the faith you had in the idea originally. It's always nice to see an entrepreneur get their dream to come true. This was an incredible team, and it's true. Not a lot of investors believed in them early. It was a company that was hard to raise money for in the early days. Um, but I saw a lot of interesting numbers and trends and believed in the team and had a lot of conviction. So you know, we led the Series A and the Series B rounds, and it worked out great for everyone. And it really has started an amazing sector of the retail segment now. The fact that you have Dollar Shave Club, there's also you know Harry's, and the fact that a company like Gillette actually added an online component, it makes a statement about having that belief in that idea all those, all those years ago. Every brand today has to become a direct-to-consumer brand. So much of our attention has been splintered away from legacy broadcast media uh, to mobile phones and social networks. And the only way to reach consumers now, since so, so few of us actually watch television commercials and, and watch legacy TV, um, is online and, and through mobile devices. And, and the way to be authentic there is, is direct-to-consumer. So we, we expect every brand will have to become a direct-to-consumer brand, and many of the largest categories of products in the world are still dominated by companies that are not direct-to-consumer brands. They don't know their customers. They don't right. sell on the Internet. So that's an investment thesis of ours. As, as I said before, your, your story seemingly at the outset isn't traditional, but then again, I don't know what traditional uh, a lot of times is in this day and age, but you graduated Penn from an engineering degree, with an engineering degree. So what did you think your path was going to be leaving here uh, several years ago? Uh, pretty much the path it's been, actually. Oh, really? I thought okay. I'd go work at a technology company. I went, went to work at Apple when I graduated. I thought I'd become an entrepreneur and work at startups, and I did that three or four times, and then you know, hoped to be a partner to other entrepreneurs to help them nurture ideas and build big companies. It's actually a pretty typical path in technology, venture capital. Most of us have engineering degrees, know how to build products, and it's just a helpful way to know what you're investing in. Uh, you mentioned Apple. Uh, music is, from what I read, a, a kind of a, a, a love of yours, not only, I guess, playing and writing it, but I, part of your work at Apple was involved with music. I had a personal passion from very young age of being a musician and listening to music. Always loved it, still do. Um, but I was born at a time where the internet, you know, a, a just coming of age, uh, graduating college, the internet was first reaching its first stage of commercialization, and the first media type to be really subjected to the new rules of the internet economy was uh, was music. Uh, you know, as it shifted from being a physical good to a digital one. So I was. Just born at the right time to be involved in digital music, I think. Is is the growth of the digital music platforms 
I, I'm sure it's not a surprise to you with with uh, you know our connections to the internet and our smartphones these days. But it, it, at times, is it even a little bit amazing to see how much it has grown and still how much more it can grow in the years to come? It's you know, the internet itself has been just incredible to me to to understand that there are three billion people connected to it now receiving information communication digitally it's far beyond what i ever expected to happen but but it is that now and the real question we ask ourselves and i think a lot of entrepreneurs ask themselves is you know how do you capitalize on those macro trends of everyone being connected in real time all the time with a device that can record and play back any media type anytime it's you know sort of the world's your oyster but um massive new businesses have been built because of it. What are, what are the kind of the things you look for when you're when you're you know looking to potentially help out a a an entrepreneur with an idea in, in this in this realm these days? Well, we think of different categories first. Um, I've spent a lot of time in consumer services, in consumer media, and in consumer products. And we also look at you know enterprise infrastructure and enterprise applications. It's kind of the world that we look at. Each one has some different characteristics about what makes a disruptable idea promising. Um, but you know, it really starts with the fact that kind of Silicon Valley best practices of creating companies and technologies moves at an unbelievably rapid pace compared to many large incumbent organizations in existing markets. And being able to move more quickly, to test, to reach, the custom, to reach customers directly, um, to uh, you know, iterate very quickly on products to help them reach perfection is uh, anathema to the way large companies work. So I think at the core, no matter what segment we're in, we're just working with very fast-moving entrepreneurs that are willing to break glass and experiment and find new products that will work. And, and I guess it does kind of reinforce the fact that, uh, and, and there are so many people that are that are thinking about being entrepreneurs and they have an idea and they see an area where, you know, some idea can be very successful. There's no reason to really not try and go down that road and see if that idea can be successful these days because of the way that, that, Entrepreneurs have success seemingly out of nowhere. Obviously, the numbers still say that there are a lot of entrepreneurial ideas that that don't make it. But still, if you don't go down that path, you'll never find out. Yeah, they say uh, venture capital is the triumph of hope over data because the (laughs) odds are so against you. I think entrepreneurial (laughs) pursuits are pretty similar. But I think what you're saying is that you know the cost to try to get a new product to market, particularly a digital product, are much lower now than they ever were, and so therefore the risks in trying to become an entrepreneur and test your idea are less. And why not take the risk if you believe you've got something exciting? So, with uh, getting back to digital music for a second, with with all the different platforms that are out there and obviously there's been a back and forth uh, within the music industry uh, of the artists you know trying to protect their uh, their product uh, where are the growth areas in the digital platform for, for music that you see uh, potentially in the next several years you know unfortunately I don't believe that music is a growth market it's actually not it's been declining mm-hmm. you know recorded music has right. been declining since 1999 which was its peak and I think the number one reason for that is because music was sold as a bundle. Uh, you know, there were 10 or 12 songs on yeah. a CD or an album before that. The only way to get one of them was to buy all 10 or 12. And that sort of artificially inflated the total revenues or really artificially inflated the, the, the effective demand for music. People didn't really want to buy 12 songs. They wanted to buy one. And so once you broke that up, 
you broke the bundle, which happened with you know iTunes and, and digital downloads, the music industry started to shrink pretty rapidly. And, and we saw kind of the true spend per consumer per year in music. And it's small. Average consumer spends like 20 or 30 bucks a year on music. So uh, you really, it's been a declining industry. The live music industry has been incredibly uh, explosive in its growth, and people pay for a lot of money for experiences. But um, I don't think there's a lot of bright spots ahead for I – don't, I don't think you're going to have a growing recorded music industry uh, for quite some time. It's going to continue to shrink, unfortunately. So, so then is recorded music almost going to be a little bit of a package that kind of goes along with the live experience these days? I think most people want to listen to music. Uh, we yeah. all do almost every day. I just there's so many free choices available, right? You have yeah. Pandora, which is effectively free. You have YouTube, which is effectively free. Um, you know, a lot of uh, online radio alternatives. So to pay for music, um, I just think actually the price is a little high today. The idea of yeah. if you really want to pay for subscription music, you got to pay 120 bucks a year, which is you know six times what the average consumer spends on music. So I think I think more people will pay for music if the price falls for subscriptions, and I think that'll eventually happen. Um, mm. But until then, you're sort of forced to either spend more than you want to or listen to free. And most people say, I'll listen to free. That, that, that's seemingly a, a tough thing to, to have that expectation of, of the price of that coming down from, you know, 100 bucks or 120 bucks a, a, a year, because uh, the fact that it's it's just as you said. It's 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 much easier to be able to still, even though the radio industry is has struggled mightily, to be able to flip on a radio and listen to the songs you want, whether whatever kind of uh, uh, demographic that that you're listening to. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's a disappointing realization that people want to spend less on music than the music industry wants them to spend. Yeah, but um, but it is true. Uh, you know, it, it is a fact, and I don't think there's something inherent in music that's going to change that. People right. say, you know what, I really should spend $120, $150 a year. So it, it's just a question of, uh, can you figure out a way to sell the product of music, the service of, of on-demand music, at cheaper price points? Uh, and unfortunately, that's not great news for uh, for artists who, who really want music to be more expensive because they want to make more money. Sure. But personally, I think this is really just a an optimization problem for which a bunch of professors at Wharton are really good at solving, uh, you know, finding the optimal <laughs> price point that gets the most people to pay yeah. um, and maximizes profit, I think would be a much lower number than it is today. Um, and actually could bring more paying customers in and, and maybe even make the pool bigger. You, were, I guess, were also inve- in, involved in Nest at one point, correct? Yes, we were investors in Nest as well. And, and that is an interesting uh, entity. Uh, obviously, the the connected home is something that is talked about more and more these days. And the ability to be able to control the thermostat within your home via an app is is something that I think more and more people will do over the years. Uh, it When you started to, to look at Nest, what were the things that, that, that really intrigued you? You know, a lot of it is was the team. Uh, this is an extraordinary team led by Tony Fidel and Matt Rogers out of Apple, um, who oversaw the creation of a huge number of iPods, iPhones, and iPads. Uh, and they believed that there are the sort of Silicon Valley best practices model of applying this supreme element of design and functionality into these unloved product categories of you know home thermostats. You could create not just a desirable product, but a premium product. Yeah. You know, there really wasn't a $250 price point thermostat. You couldn't spend that much money if you wanted to, uh, yet you spent 30 or 50 bucks for a real 
you know, disappointing product. And so they created a premium product experience. We fell in love with that idea and, you know, moved much more quickly and brought a much higher level of customer knowledge uh, than, you know, the incumbents they were they are fighting against, uh, Honeywell in their case. Uh, so we love that story. It's very consistent with our view that, again, you can disrupt many incumbents in very large markets by bringing this customer-centric design-first um, software combined with machine learning and data to, to produce products that are smart and get better over time. Is it a little bit easier for companies like Nest to, to see a level of success in, in this day and age compared to going back, you know, like 30 years ago? Obviously, they couldn't have done it, you know, before, what, about 1990. Uh, but is it a little easier even now in 2016 for a company like Nest that, that has something unique and it's something that consumers will benefit from uh, for them to be successful? I think the two things that have changed the most that make it easier for new consumer product companies to come to market are foot traffic to physical retail stores are down. So being really good at dominating store shelves is no longer a core requirement for success because it's not where people are going as much anymore. You can sell direct and reach consumers. And two, people are watching much less TV and they don't see TV ads. So being good at television commercials is also not as important. You can reach consumers on the internet, on Facebook. So with distribution and marketing effectively democratized, the advantages of the incumbents in so many product categories is sort of neutralized. And now you stand on your own based on product quality, features, benefits, price. So uh, I think that those facts are what have laid the groundwork for so many new products in hardware categories to come yeah. to market. How much do you think that, that, that something like Nest is going to grow in the years to come, especially uh, with more people considering this as a, as a good option, but also the fact that, that as homes are being built now, more and more of them are connected? I mean, we see homes that, that are wired these days. You know, I think particularly with the adoption of things like Alexa, you know, the yeah. Amazon yep. product, the expectation is that I can talk and interact with most of the devices in my house that use electricity. And that means they all have to become connected. And so I think they all will become connected. You know, washing machines are connected now. Refrigerators are connected. I'm not so sure they're doing useful things with that connection just <laughs> yet. But, but some of them are. Certainly turn your lights on and off, right? Or identify when there's some, someone suspicious walking around my house or, you know, open my garage door when I approach in my car. Those are all useful features that connected devices can do. And so yeah. fully believe that they all either already are connected or will be. The home is, is an entire connected appliance itself. David Packman joins us, who is a partner at Venrock. He's also a Penn grad, uh, engineering grad, uh, here on Sirius XM 111, business radio powered by the Wharton School. Going back to, to Dollar Shave Club, uh, excuse me, for a couple of minutes, uh, three million or more uh, consumers using Dollar Shave Club. And now Unilever is, is part of the, uh, of the formula. Uh, I saw a couple of interviews when that that deal was announced, and you talked about how beneficial it could be for Dollar Shave Club having the backing of Unilever and all of the products and all the reach that it has globally to really make Dollar Shave Club much more in the years to come than what it it has already become. Yeah, they've had extraordinary success really in one geographic market in the United States. They're at more than 16% U.S. market share of the men's cartridge market in just four years, and they're growing incredibly quickly. So they'll continue to eat up market share in the U.S. 
but to reach their dream of uh, being a globally dominant men's grooming brand, um, they need help internationally. Unilever yeah. is an incredible company that's got a massive global footprint and can really, I think, speed their um, deployment to a number of countries and really help them launch there. So uh, with the resources and the knowledge of the company, I think it really accelerates Michael's ambition to be a dominant global brand. How much does it, it does it also, the timing, really work for him? Because if, if memory serves me, uh, Dollar Shave Club, y- you know, you had the razors, but they were starting to get more into uh, gels and other grooming products for men as well, correct? Yes, they have uh, 27 other products today, from, you know, from soaps and hair products, um, shaving cream, uh, and are launching many more. It's definitely part of the brand. You know, Michael always said uh, anyone can sell razors on the internet. Like that's not really what they're doing. <laughs> they, they created a you know global, or the goal is to create a global dominant men's lifestyle brand, a men's grooming brand, and that involves a number of products in a lot of categories. So that is very complementary with Unilever's skill set, and is definitely part of the playbook. But with Unilever, they obviously they already have a, a wide range of products, and some of them probably do cross over into what Dollar Shave Club would like to be able to bring. So going forward, I guess Dollar Shave Club, in some respects, almost has to, if they're going to use some of those products, they have to repackage them for their purposes alone. They can't just bring in a Unilever product and all of a sudden plug it into what Dollar Shave Club is going to do. Yeah, I think the um, the management of Unilever is a very forward-thinking company, and they do believe in some of the trends that I was talking about earlier, that you have to become direct-to-consumer brand. And in one transaction, they bought the leading uh, CPG online company with the, yeah. the most knowledge of how to reach consumers directly and sell them stuff every month. And so I think they're really hopeful that that knowledge will, can be the tip of the spear in helping evolve the company from being, you know, a company that dominated the last hundred years of CPG to one that can, you know, dominate the next hundred. I'm guessing though that that even in as we sit here in, you know, August of 2016, that there are probably companies out there, very successful companies that maybe have a little bit of a legacy to them, that are still not monopolizing the internet the way they probably should, uh, and in some respects. Those companies may have been so big over the years that it, you know, it may not knock them off the books, but it certainly does affect their bottom line, and they're they're missing opportunities for growth even further. Now, our bet is there are tens of thousands of companies that meet the description you just laid out, and we're betting against most of them. Yeah, you know, or, or I should say, we're betting against most of them. We're betting against that category that we can bring to market um, competitors that are more nimble and use distribution and marketing methods that are just more suited to the modern times um, and be more effective against them. So I fully agree with the observation you made, and I think my bet is there are far more startups who can um, compete and eat out market share more quickly than the legacy incumbents can adapt. Gillette making the move that they did to to start their own, own online club, I don't know if you can estimate it, but how much realistically by starting that do they save in market share lost because of the fact that they obviously were losing ground to people that were buying Dollar Shave Club or or were buying other competitors in that realm? I listened to their uh, earnings call uh, or read, read the transcript of their earnings call and their press release, and they our sales are still down in the United States since the only market we compete in, and they expressly named U.S online competition as the culprit. So I, from that, I can only tell you it doesn't look like it's being very successful. 
So, so then, the, boy, that's interesting because now Gillette, as a company, as a legacy company, really has to rethink uh, their approach on this. What, so it's really the mind of the consumer right now that they are choosing, saying that Dollar Shave Club or Harry's or another option, those are the ones that, that I prefer to work with because they give me X over Gillette, which doesn't give me that. Yeah, I mean, I think the consumers are voting with their attention and their dollars, and we've seen a, you know, a lot of market share lost from the incumbents to the online competitors. Um, though the you know, question is, what can they do about it? And um, I think, you know, thus far, um, I think the hardest part for them is trying to figure out how to talk with and listen to their customers. I, mean, I think the biggest difference for brands that sell on the internet is they tend to be conversational brands. Brands that talk with their customers right. rather than shout at them. You know, broadcast television is really a, a platform for shouting at your customers and hoping they hear what you say. But online, you can't get away with that. And, and if you sort of look at even Gillette's Facebook page, when they post videos that, that mock the online competitors, they get thousands of comments saying, what are you talking about? Your prices are way too high. Yeah. We like these other guys. Yeah. So I think they're pretty surprised by that, my guess is. It, it, part of this, I, I wonder if it's also a, a byproduct. Obviously, the pricing does work for a, a lot of the consumers. But also, is there a timing part of this uh, that the fact that we're coming, we, you know, we were in a recession several years ago, and over the last six or seven years, people didn't have as much money to spend. Men didn't have as much money to spend. Even on the smallest things, the littlest things like razors. So having this option at a at a lower price point just made it easier to go that way. And then the product being good made it easier for them to stay in that realm. Yeah, look, it's just a smart decision to pay less for something that's just as good. And yeah. guys are smart, so you know it's not not much more complex than that. Um, I think the the economic model that the in this case Gillette um, lived under. Um, was one that you know they spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year on television advertising, paying Roger Federer to endorse the product. I don't know how many tens of millions of dollars they pay him. You and they, and, they, and they had and they had Derek Jeter there too. Right, you got to keep prices high to pay for all that, right? So if you can make a direct to consumer model have higher product margins for yourself yeah. and much lower marketing costs, you can lower the price, right? And that's what Dollar Shave did, and um, I think that's a really powerful. Uh, method of uh, of innovation. Are, are there other areas within the retail sector that that you watch on a daily basis and you say, keep an eye on this in the next in the next five to ten years because this is something that we will see great growth in in, in well, the next few years. Here's an example: automotive. Okay. Cars. Think about the companies that make cars, particularly U.S. operators. They yep. do not sell direct to consumer. They don't even know their customers. Their right. customers are dealers. The dealers, I would argue, are are neutral at best to the car buying experience, but are probably net negative. Yes, right? you know, agreed. Yes, haggling, you yes. know, non transparency, misleading advertising. Yeah, you know, I don't even not know a what a, not a great service when you have to you go know, in and get your car worked on. Right, sixty minutes once a year runs some investigation that they're telling you they're changing the oil and not doing it right. I mean, just no no trust, right. no transparency. Right, value destruction in the entire experience of buying a car. Now you take Tesla, a direct-to-consumer car company, no dealers, sold 
you know, no haggle pricing. There's no, there's no haggling. There's just a, you, you can buy a Tesla car on your phone yeah. uh, by looking at a web page, right? And they tell you when it's delivered. Com- there's no commissions paid to salespeople. Like completely rethinking the model, sort of the Apple model, if you brought it to cars. Yeah. It, the only problem with Tesla has been it's expensive. So you get companies like that to solve that problem, and that can fundamentally change the entire expectations of what a car company is. Yeah. I think that's a massive disruption point for the automobile industry. It, is, the, is the medical field, is the medical industry kind of in that realm as well? And I say that because, obviously, the experience still, even though we're seeing more telehealth and, and that venue, the experience still for a lot of people is not great when you have to go see the doctor and you have to wait there a long time and then, you know, all that is involved in going to see a doctor these days. Totally. Uh, we have a company called, just as one example, Doctor on Demand. You download the app for your phone, you pay 40 bucks, and you get an uh, appointment on demand but just by opening up the app with a licensed, certified physician who can, you know, it does video chat with you and can prescribe medication right there and then. Uh, if, you don't, if it wasn't a good experience, you don't pay the 40 bucks. Yeah. Now, that's obviously not perfect for every medical condition, but it is for a whole bunch of stuff. Right. Um, and, uh, and just one example of service level innovation to kind of make healthcare easier, better, nicer. What else? I mean, what are some of the other companies that, that you guys are involved in that, that are seemingly doing a lot of the, this same type of, same type of work to make things easier for the consumer? Well, we'll stick with cars for a minute. Uh, I'll give you an example. So there's no question that within some number of years, somewhere between two and eight, there's going to be many, many self-driving cars on the road. Yeah. Uh, there's no question that the future of all automobiles will be self-driving, and it'll be massively safer um, and reduce the 39,000 traffic deaths in the, in the U.S. a year, you know, 1.2 million a year globally. Um, the question is, how do you bring that technology to market? Now, left to its own devices, what will happen is all that tech will appear in brand new cars at the high end. Right. And what a shame if the only way to get a self-driving car is to is to buy the top of the line and to buy a new car. Right, exactly. Uh, people, right. So one, one company we invested in is a company called Pearl, and they make safety and autonomous products for your existing car that you can buy off the shelf and put on your car and start huh. to get some of the benefit of all this stuff. Their first product is the most amazing rear vision backup camera system. Self-install, solar charge, totally wireless, streams to your phone, intelligent software using machine learning to identify objects, to beep at you when a kid is on a tricycle or a, a, someone's pushing a shopping cart in a, in a parking lot. Uh, really smart, very similar to the Nest Play of, of creating a premium product in a category but that's yeah. super smart and intelligent, and you can buy it and install it yourself and add it to your existing car. So I think we'll see a lot of interesting stuff coming from a company like them. And, and it's amazing that all of it is is on the simple concept of trying to really make things easier for the consumer. It's, it's, it's incredible. David, thank you very much. Hey, I look forward to having you back on the show again. Great conversation. Greatly appreciate your time. Thanks for having me here, Dan. Thank you. David Packman, a partner at uh, Venrock, joining us uh, on the show. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.